The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. It is my pleasure to welcome my very special guest this morning and a good friend of mine, Dr. Sherry Clark. Sherry is the co-founder of Social Synergetics. She is a visionary. Um, This woman amazes me. I can't wait for you all to hear her story. She is the former director of Shock Incarceration and the Willard Drug Treatment Campus for the New York State Department of Correctional Services. She has been a student of Buckminster Fuller um, for many, many years and incorporates the work of Bucky Fuller to the nth degree and has made a difference for so many countless individuals and organizations. Sherry, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great introduction. Oh, it's great to have you here. I am so excited that we're able to do this today. And, you know, I um, have watched you for the last couple of years really move toward um, bringing your message out into the world. And, And I am so excited to be able to share this with people. So where are you this morning, Dr. Clark? Where am I this morning? Where are you physically? Physically located in Troy, New York, which, um, for people who've never heard of it, is the home of Uncle Sam, as in Uncle Sam wants you. Yes. Sam Wilson was a butcher during the uh, War of 1812, and he stamped his meat U.S., and so he became Uncle Sam. He fed the troops. (laughs) (laughs) You know, little known trivia. You know, our show is... So worthwhile for so many pieces of information. I never knew that. We were, a stop. we were also a stop on the Underground Railroad, and this is one of the places where the Industrial Revolution started in the United States. Mm. Um, in terms logistically from where I used to work for the Department of uh, Corrections and Community Services, uh, is it's right across the river from Albany, New York, the state capital of New York. Oh, oh. So are you a, a native New Yorker? Oh, no. I was born in New Orleans, Louisiana. Oh. And oh. Uh, in my teenage years, I, was, I lived in Virginia and was in a boarding school run by the people I very affectionately call the Sisters of No Mercy. And when I was still working in prison, I was still working in prison, I used to tell the inmates, you know, I was trained by the Sisters of No Mercy. Don't expect any. (laughs) (laughs) um, 
So that could be a whole show. But we, oh, yeah. We won't, we won't go there today. Um, so, so, you know, I, I've been fascinated to learn about the work that you have done in, in the prison system and in the correctional system. Tell us a bit about how you got there. What got you connected to the prison system? Well, it, it's actually, I was working for social services um, early on in my career when I was a young 23, 24-year-old and had absolutely no business being in charge of uh, helping other people in their lives, but that's, that's the average age of social workers, 25, 26. Mm-hmm. And in the course of, of working in that arena, I kept noticing that that people um, in my caseload were were visiting people in prison. And I became very, hmm. very interested in prison and thinking about how is it that people ended up there and came across a number of different explanations uh, about how people end up in prison. And one of the things that I noticed was that it, it's just really, there's not much opportunity for people at the um, lower end of our economic system. They're, they're, you know, they're working in marginal jobs. They're, they're struggling. They're doing the best they can. Many of them are working in three and four jobs uh, to try to make ends meet. And these people were also ending up in trouble in school, those kinds of things. The average person who goes to prison comes into prison with a, approximately a fifth-grade education. And so that means, essentially, they gave up on themselves at about age 10. And they were products of foster care system. They are products of a number of different systems. And so the economically disadvantaged don't have the opportunities people do um, who have economic advantages to, uh, when they commit crimes, to, to make income. Sometimes they, they do inappropriate things, things that are against society. But in the meantime, their customers are people at the high end of the economic scale. So it becomes quite a uh, drama. Um, You know, one thing you said, um, the average patient is up to fifth grade, and um, that, that really means that that individual gave up on themselves at about age 10. Yes. And I think, wow, you know, and, and not to have anybody around them who was the one who said, you know, you can't give up on yourself, and until you figure out that you can't do that, I'm going to, you know, believe in you until you can believe in yourself. And um, I think for many of us, we have had people around us. We've been... Um, you know, fortunate enough to have people around us who have encouraged us and said, you know, you know, you're having a bad day or you're having a bad week or you're having a bad year, you know, we'll help you through it, right? Yes. And, but these kids didn't have that. No, I mean, they're not the only people who go to prison. It's just that the largest majority of people who are in prison are there because of economic challenges and the the pretty much only opportunity for them to make money 
enough to pay the rent, to pay to pay the heat bill, um, is through illegal means. Um, many of the crimes for which people were going to prison who were in my program are no longer crimes. Um, oh wow! Drugs are being decriminalized all over the country, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so things that they were going to prison for are no longer illegal. There are people setting up marijuana distribution centers everywhere. Right, right. Well, so, you know, that that kind of um, begs the question around um, drug use as an escape um, and, you know, kind of a way to um, check out of society versus um, drug use as something that they got caught doing. Um, you know, maybe it did or didn't um, affect kind of their daily life or their capacity to work, et cetera, um, you know, because there are both, right? You know, there's both yes. of those scenarios. And, um, and, and I can imagine that um, it must be tough to separate those two, you know, when you're looking at an individual um, who you're working with, and, and you do a lot with drug addiction and helping people in recovery, et cetera, move into recovery. Um, and we're going to talk a bit about your program, Shock Incarceration, which is internationally known and recognized as a leading type of program in the world. Um, you know, just to set the context, um, this program that you developed, shock incarceration. Um, It takes inmates through a process that is, I would say, not for the faint of heart, and and that the outcome of that is that um, in July of 2010, the New York State Department of Correctional Services reported that the shock program contributed to more than one point Three billion, a billion with a B, contributed to more than 1.3 billion in cost savings to the taxpayers of New York. And I mean, this is fascinating. So, Sherry, I wanted you to tell us a bit about the program, and then tell us about why you know what is it that is the cost savings. But first, let's talk about the program. Okay. A shock incarceration was actually the second of what I called total learning environments that I designed for the prison system based on physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual, not religious, but spiritual uh, components of a human being. That's something we all share in common. It was based in making smart choices, it was based in learning to live successful lives, and it was based in uh, the the principles of the 12 Steps to Recovery, which I found to be, uh, to cross every discipline. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that happened is over the course of my work in prison, I worked in prison for 36 years, and over the course of my work in prison, I discovered that the synergetics of Buckminster Fuller, which is basically his discovery was the science of how universe operated, the synergetics of Buckminster Fuller and the 12 steps to recovery exactly paralleled each other. Mm -hmm. And this was an evolutionary phase. This happened over 
many long years. I just had intuition about what work in prison. I had I did workshops. I volunteered in corrections back in the early seventies. Um, had a was involved in a wonderful program called the Thresholds Program, which trained volunteers for prisons to teach people how to make healthy choices. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought about everything that I had done. I was involved as a therapist in private practice for a while. I uh, was involved with the spiritual disciplines of um, holistic health communities. All of those things seemed to me to be related to each other. And so I put all of these things that I had studied, that I had learned from experience, into a, a lifestyle for people to live in prisons. And so the first program, the network program, operated in prisons throughout the state as a single unit within a larger, larger prison complex. And then in the mid-'80s, one of the commissioners who came through, Thomas Coglin, looked at me on the housing unit of one of the prisons I, w- I worked in, and he said, Clark, why can't they all be this way? And I said, well, they can. Mm-hmm. And then we had a huge boom from 1972 to about the, the mid-1990s. There was an incredible boom of people coming into prison for longer and longer sentences for less and less violent crimes. So we ended up with a prison overcrowding program in New York that many, many states were facing. And the commissioner came back to me in the end of 1986, and he said, you, could do the, you told me you could do this in a total institution. He said, okay. He says, I want to do this in a total institution. And he described this kind of boot camp program that was happening around the country. And, and I said, I don't, didn't sound like a very good idea to me the way they were being run. And he said, that's exactly why I want you. I want you to put network at the core of this program, the life skills, the, the uh, smart choices components of the network program. He said, I want all of those to be a part of this program. And we placed it in the context of a military model because the shock incarceration program was short-term. It could earn an inmate who successfully participated and graduated from the program as much as two and a half years off their minimum sentence of incarceration. So that's one of the ways that the money was saved, was that people... we. People could go through this six-month intensive program, learn the skills that they needed to learn, and they learned them remarkably. Um, I expanded the academic education program initially for shock incarceration. There wasn't much of an academic education program uh, planned, but I said, you've got to They've got to be able to get their GED at least. They've got to be able to mm. uh, get a job, and they can't get a job without a high school diploma. So right. we expanded the academic education program, but not so much in hours as part of my training is in quantum learning, which is another friend of ours owns that company yeah. and runs that program with super camps all over the world. 
And I had met Bobby in 1983, so by the time 1986 came around, I had a full-blown idea in my head about this total learning institution, and the commissioner gave me the opportunity to do it. He said, I want you to come back. I was with parole at that period of time. I'd been with corrections until 85, came back from parole in 1987 to start shock incarceration. And so it was a physically disciplined program. It was an emotionally uh, clear it was, the program, had um, elements of emotional intelligence and clarity of learning how to express your feelings appropriately, learning how to manage your internal dialogue um, in, a, in ways that were productive and supportive. And... Um, they, they had academic tools. They had tools around the 12 steps to recovery. And many people will dismiss the 12 steps of recovery. Nobody who's actually been in recovery will. But many people will dismiss it and say, oh, it's, it's a religious-based program. It really isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, it has no connection with any religion. But it does say there are certain things that if you do these things in your life, they will make your life better. Tell yeah. the truth. You know, well, and you um, know, I, I just I love the way that you have um, really blended the whole concept of you know not only knowing what to do, but the intense self reflection, taking responsibility for one's own behaviors, teaching people what what responsible and clear boundaries are. I mean, this program is just fascinating to me. So we're going to take a break, but when we come back, we're going to talk more about what it's like to work inside of a prison system. We'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Engage with Andy Bush takes you inside the mind of a top global market and public policy analyst who has been featured regularly on CNBC, Yahoo Finance, and numerous radio and television programs. Our program will bring you guests and stories from the top of the political and business worlds. Each show includes Andy's point of view roundup and what it means for you at home. Life's complicated. Let Andy help you figure it out. Tune in every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito speaking with my special guest today, Dr. Sherry Clark. Sherry, um, we've been talking a bit about the programs that you developed over the years for the New York State Department of Correctional Services, and they have been so highly successful. They have contributed to huge cost savings for the New York taxpayers. You've been given multiple awards for this recognition around the world. Now, you know, you said that you started out working um, in the prison system when you were a young social worker and, you know, moved up from there and doing a lot of really innovative programs that um, people who were in charge began to notice because they began to notice that um, the inmates who went through these programs had better outcomes, um, tended to... Um, get out of prison, stay out of prison, more than a typical population that had not. Tell us a little bit about what it's like to actually work inside of a prison system. You know, you, you say you started as a pretty young person, so in a way you kind of grew up there, right? You, most people who don't have exposure to the prison system walk around with a bit of fear, now it's like, ooh, don't want to go near that. And these are all highly dangerous and violent people. And I've actually heard some people say, why would she want to do that? So tell us a bit about what it's like. Well, when I first started, women really didn't work in prison very much. Mm. I started... Uh, volunteering in prisons in 1973, started working in prisons in 1974, and that was really the beginning of women starting to be accepted in the prison system. Now there, now there are many, many, many women, but I was one of the pioneers of women working in the system and um, learning to deal with that. And what you say about what other people say about who goes to prison is they think of them as, you know, rapists and murderers and violent people. The truth is the average person going to prison is young, nonviolent, um, in, interested, very interested in learning, and just have not had the opportunities to do that. There's so much more talk about it today, but bullying in schools has been going on for a long, long, long time. What started to happen lately is that kids of very nice parents are being bullied, and so the parents are are causing it to be brought to people's attention. There's no excuse for it. There's no reason to bully another human being, but people do it because they're in pain themselves. And Mm -hmm. so all of these things that were going on in the prison system are, uh, that resulted in people ending up in the prison system were th- experiences in their own lives of not knowing how to be successful. And so the total learning environments, shock incarceration being the, the most recent iteration of these, taught people how to make choices that had them 
moving with pride and dignity, that had them being balanced, that had them learning how to be flexible in situations, that had them learning how to make commitments that, that were powerful commitments to themselves and work through the discipline of staying focused on those commitments so that in, in the shock incarceration program, in less than one quarter of the time in an academic program um, of any person in the country, not just, not just in... Um, but in less than one quarter of the time, the, the people who were successfully completing shock were graduating at better than twice the rate of getting their high school diplomas. Mm. And, you know, it's um, pretty fascinating. That, that, that's pretty fascinating. And I, I think as you're describing the content of the program, mm-hmm. I'm thinking, you know, these that we should be teaching everybody. These are things we should be teaching young kids in school all the time. Not necessarily just people who are in prison. Right. It was it was my focus that took it to prison and, and there are other people who are working in schools and somebody asked me one time, Why do you work in prison? Why don't you work in school? I said, In prison they know they've hit bottom. In schools mm-hmm. they think they've got all the answers still. They still, you know, it hasn't hasn't hurt enough, and yeah. and there is something about the the pain of learning uh, about your life not being successful. That when you can take that breath and say, "Okay, I this isn't working for me. I w- I want to do this." I mean, I ha- remember a young inmate years ago sitting on one of the housing units, and he was. He was saying he was one of the people who had a room. This was a dormitory arrangement. We had open dorms, and we had a few um, private cells that that people could could be in there by themselves. And we were saying, because he was being irresponsible, we were going to take him out of his room and put him in the dorm. He says, I used to live in a cardboard box. I don't care. I mean, it was that, that level of of futility and desperation that goes on with some people. And the the kids, and I think of them often as kids, because in shock incarceration, when we first started, you couldn't be older than 24. Now, over the years, over the 26 years shock has operated, you can be older. But the first group of shock incarceration were 16 years old to 24 years old. Now, a 16-year-old in an adult prison, I don't care who you are, that's scary. You know, that's very, very scary. And one of the things that the discipline of this program allowed, I mean, we just wouldn't allow bullying. We wouldn't allow the big guy to have it take advantage of the little guy. And um, we work with men and women, so when I say, say guy, we at first started just with men. And then within a year, started introducing women. But, you know, there, there are some women, there are plenty of women bullies, and they bully a little bit differently. But um, still, at the same time, people knew they were safe in the program. They knew that nothing bad was going to happen to them in the program when the, they, the 
way it was structured, the whole focused way it was structured, was that a people they they had to sit a certain way, they had to stand a certain way, they had to move a certain way, which got us some criticism from people who were liberals. They would say because we said if you're going to eat, you're going to eat. That's what you're going to do in the dining hall, you're not going to be talking during meals. And they said, well, why don't they have a conversation at meals? I said, we're talking about people who were eating out of dumpsters six months ago. We're talking about people who never sat down to a family meal in their life, by and large. They don't have time. In the first place, there were many, many, many inmates in the program, anywhere from 250 to as many as 750 in each six-month cycle, constantly changing because we, we moved in new groups of inmates, new cohorts of inmates every week to somewhere in the program at its largest. And um, these were people who, we had, to, we had to move these people in and out of the dining room and everybody had to eat so that because you need to physically fuel your body to, for the kinds of uh, demands we were placing on them. They became physically fit. People lost as much as 120 pounds in six wow. months. People who had been, you know, eating so poorly that that they they didn't know people were leaving. I remember a judge one time didn't want us to put this 350-pound kid in the program because he said he just wouldn't be able to do it. And I called the judge, and and, um, I had the superintendent of the facility this kid was slated for, called the judge, and we said, well, watch him carefully. But we have had people lose as much as 150 pounds. We can... We can do this. We can work with this. This kid was so proud on his graduation day. He he went from 350 down to like 190, and he just looked amazing, and he felt amazing. He's been doing very well ever since. He He's working. He, he I think he's working for one of the cable companies for a while, but he kept writing mm. back and talking to us. His judge came to his graduation. That's oh. Very that impressive. must make you feel that must that must really be so rewarding for you and for the um, the other facilitators that you have worked with and taught to implement this program. You must that that just must be worth every moment. Uh, it is. It truly is. And one of the things to to bear in mind that I think is so important is that we did this with. Union employees, I trained union employees. We didn't have special staff. We weren't allowed to even select our staff. Our staff selected us. They did have to go through training. And so they would self-select sometimes because the shock incarceration, none of it's for everybody. Not any one model is for every single person. Mm-hmm. Everybody doesn't come in and say, oh, I love this program. As sure. a matter of fact, if somebody does come in and say, I love this program, within the first couple of weeks, I say there's something wrong here because, <laughs> because it's, it's, it's tough. It's a tough program. Yeah. And, um, but there's, there is something so powerful about people learning to be proud of themselves, learning to take care of themselves. Yeah. We've, had, we've had kids come into the program who didn't know how to tie their shoes, who didn't know, didn't know basic hygiene, didn't know that they, were, that they should take a shower, didn't know that such a thing was, you know, I mean, it's just so far beyond most people's experience, but we had people like this that we had to literally yeah. teach Everything 
from the ground up. And, and some people would come in, you know, that have learning difficulties, learning challenges. They'd be had been labeled um, retarded or labeled, and but they could literally, once they got an opportunity to learn in these incredibly in, um, experiential learning mm-hmm. things, ex- exercises that we did with them, they they just felt so powerful when they could stand up in front of a group of people and speak, and each one of them had to speak. Um, in in every session, people had to stand up. They had to be present. They had to um, be engaged and involved, and otherwise they wouldn't pass their evaluation. So they they went from being terrified, fearful, and and either angry or scared, you know, manifesting in different kinds of ways, or ang- angry and scared at the same time, that um, by the end, these people who were standing up and saying, this is the best thing that ever happened to me. You know, I, I have friends now who were inmates years ago who, who they weren't my friends before they came through the program. Yeah. They have done so remarkably well and so powerfully well, and they're teaching in their communities, and they're contributing to their communities, and working with kids and working with with women and, and just doing incredible jobs all oh, over really the place. They're giving back. Yeah, they're really giving yes. back. But, but, you know, I really wonder, though, you know, it, it's, um, it's one thing for people to embrace um, this type of learning and behavior in a structured environment where there are clear boundaries and expectations and every day um, they know what they are expected to be, how they're expected to show up, et cetera, what behaviors are acceptable and not. And then when they get out of prison and um, get back into society and um, they now have a world that operates differently, you know, may have the same kind of expectations, but there's not necessarily the immediate feedback, immediate consequence, et cetera. Um, you know, how does that work? I mean, is it, it must be tough for people to do that. Any program that is as intense as shock incarceration was has to have a strong aftercare component. We mm. had that in place in some parts of, of the state. Um, when I trained people around the country um, in other prison systems, we said you have to have what we called aftershock or as some kind of aftercare program. There has to be an involvement. But one of the reasons why I was so adamant about having the 12 Steps to Recovery be part of the program was because anybody in any community, anywhere, can go to a meeting in the community at no charge, no cost, and find a group of people who are willing to sit in a room and listen to them with respect and share with them about how they're making it. And so when, when there were challenges to, you know, why are you using a program that, that mentions God? Well, you know, um, G-O-D can be good orderly direction, a group of drunks. <laughs> A group of drug addicts. It can be anything that's bigger than than us. You know, anything that's more powerful. I said, you know, the 
12 steps talk about a higher power. Well, the judge has more power than me if I'm a criminal in front of the bench, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and, and so even I, if those, those who are not um, substance abusers or, or drug addicts or alcohol abusers um, could go to a 12-step meeting and they would be welcomed. Anywhere. Anywhere wow. in the world. There, there are... There are millions and millions of of programs all over the world, but in every community, in every part of the state, and one of the things we would say to people is, you know, when you first get, we wanted them to get used to the idea of meetings because we wanted them to go, and we had a phrase on, on it that we kept repeating to them, 90 meetings in 90 days. If you go to a meeting every day, you know, if you go to, if you need to go to three meetings a day, do, you know, yeah. do whatever. Yeah. Some, some meetings run 24 hours in the mm. larger cities. But, but instead of picking up a drink, and I, you know, I have friends who, who, um, their relatives or their, or their, you know, someone's fiance just relapsed after years mm. in recovery mm. and he was mm. feeling bad. Well, you know, go to a meeting and it, the, the the friend of mine's daughter just said, you know, she just said, I I got to go to a meeting. And people will say, well, you're depending on this group. Aren't we all depending on the group? How many people work out every day if they don't have somebody working out with them? You know, it, sure. it takes the rare individual to do that. So 12-step. Mm. So, so, you know, that connection to others, that connect that human connection really, really matters. And, and I think that's really what you're saying. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we have more to talk about with Dr. Sherry Clark. We'll be right back. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. What does conscious leadership mean to you? It unites organizations instead of dividing them. By exploring commonly based business challenges, it guarantees an increase in your bottom line. Tune in to Minding Our Business, Creating a Spiritual Economy with your host, Nadine Rogers. Each week, we'll hear from business leaders and learn from their strategies. We'll talk about personal and organizational best practices that you can learn from, and we'll hear from you. Minding Our Business airs live Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. 
We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Escobedo with my special guest today, Dr. Sherry Clark. Now, Sherry, um, your program called Doing Life, which I love, because um, it's such a double entendre, right? Doing life, people in prison um, often are doing life, and um, you're teaching them about doing life, actually yes. living a real life, yeah? Um, so, you know, just before I went to break, I was asking about what happens when people go back into society um, and how that works for them. And, and, you know, just to kind of tag on to that, you know, you have said that when they go to apply for a job, on any job application, no matter how long it's been since they were incarcerated, they have to check that box. You know, yes, I've committed a crime. Yes, I have committed a felony. Yes, I have been incarcerated. You know, whatever, whatever however it's positioned on the, on the application. And that, for some of them, is um, an automatic no-go. You know, yeah. some organizations just say, nope, can't do it, won't do it. And you... I know that you've talked about in the past that there are actually communities who make it their business to very much on purpose invite people who have been incarcerated to come to work in their community. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, one of the things that happens is that there are there are many service agencies out there, but there one of the things that happened one time I was in New York at a at a meeting, and we were sitting in this restaurant. It was a meeting for shock incarceration. We're sitting in this restaurant, and this the chef comes walking by, looked at me, looked at the the my partners in crime fighting who were sitting at the table, and she locked up at attention, and she said, "Ma'am, sirs." Do you remember me? And she was actually the first person to ever be recycled to be able to go back through shock incarceration again. She brought her bosses over to us. She um, introduced us, and we were laughing about, you know, who introduces their prison guard to their boss. But um, she was so she was so excited to see us. She made us a beautiful meal, and she and her boss came over to me and said, "Send me all you've got." Now I've been in that rest those same chain. He said he had a chain of restaurants. He had six restaurants in the city. He said, "You send me all you've got because I will hire them all. I will absolutely hire them every single one of them, and um, and you know." Do, do whatever it takes. We saw busboys, we saw cooks, we saw waiters, we saw, we saw everybody in these restaurants because he kept his word. And we have people who say, yes, I'll do it. I'll, I'll give them a job. I'll take care of this. Um, and, and the thing is, they have to work. And this is what we've told them. Nobody's going to give you a job. Nobody's going to mm-hmm. let you keep a job. If you don't work, one of the things they they get a very strong feel for is a positive work ethic and shock incarceration because they work in addition to program activities and everything else. They work every day. And so they want to work. 
there just weren't necessarily jobs that they could do. Right. Um, right. Or, you know, they weren't old enough or they didn't have a high school diploma or something came mm-hmm. along to intervene and they could not do the, do the work. But um, right. they, I see people like that all the time in the community who, who purposely hire people who have gone through shock incarceration. And anybody who goes through shock incarceration learns to talk about themselves and what they've learned from their mistakes because, after all, that's one of our main principles is that failure leads to success, you know, when you learn from your mistakes. I'm I'm curious to know if, through all the years that you were doing this work, were you ever afraid? Mm, No, I don't think so. I, I think maybe... I was I was nervous when I took some people who'd never been in prison before into the system, and they were so nervous. And I, w- I was uh, nervous about that. But the truth is, the people behind bars know that that's where they should be for either a little while or for a long while, and um, that that they need to learn. Now, believe me. I think that some of our drug laws in this country were completely unrealistic, and nobody, mm-hmm. nobody in my opinion, deserves to do 15 to life for selling drugs. Nobody. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think the only answer is prison. For some people, right. some people need to be in prison. The, the tougher those people were, the more respectful they were. Really, there are some people who just need those boundaries. There are other people who, who, had they had different opportunities, had they had different life experiences, would never have been there and, and do their best to make the best of it. I, you know, it's, it's not that I'm saying, you know, I'm this liberal that says you ought to let everybody out of prison because somebody asked me why I didn't work toward the end of prisons. I said, because there are people who belong there. Mm. <laughs> people mm. I don't want to uh, meet on the street on the street corner mm. um, who've done some things that are pretty horrible. Most, for the mm. most part, the people I worked with had never done anything violent, had had mm. basically harmed themselves more than they harmed other people, mm. and were um, really bad entrepreneurs. <laughs> they, you know, they didn't know how to sell their product without getting in trouble. And um, because there's lots of drug dealers around, and um, there are lots of, of things that, that people could learn from the people who go through shock incarceration. I did a presentation once at a community college, and I'm watching all these slouchy kids with these terrible attitudes, and I'm looking at them, and finally I said, you know, you all better clean up your act. So I said, because i got a whole bunch of people who are getting ready to get out of prison, and uh, they're going to take your jobs because they know how to mm. sit up straight. They know how to be respectful. They know how to work, and they do. And I said, you, mm. you, you know, sometimes these kids of great privilege think, you know, think that they can do no wrong. Well, there's, you know, there are people who don't want to tolerate that, don't want to put up with that. So there are people who who really learn to turn their lives around 
and shock incarceration in New York and impact in Louisiana and summit in Oregon and all the places where we worked gave them the opportunity to take control of their lives. And they, they have, the vast majority of them have. That's why the recidivism rate is so low. In fact, the return rate for the New York State Shock Incarceration Program was less than uh, 10%. So the return wow. rate to prison was less than t- 10% first year out. That's, that's unheard of. Um, we had the most highly successful program in the country for 25 years. Now, the average prison program only lasts about three or four years. So for shock incarceration to have lasted over 25 years is, is a phenomenon in itself. And it is because we, we gave people tools, we taught them how to use them, we had them manage their own internal and external behaviors. Um, mm-hmm. We taught them how to do life, how to right. live right. a life, because it, it was purposely the, the curriculum, doing life curriculum, which was the substance abuse treatment curriculum I wrote, mm-hmm. and the smart choices curriculum. One of the things that we, we taught people to do was to you could either be doing life in prison for the rest of your life, or you could be doing life in the outside community. And uh, one of my favorite books while I was working was Russell Simmons' Do You, because he, he, he literally paralleled the, the, all of the things we were teaching in shock incarceration, and he's one of the wealthiest men in the country. So, well, Sherry, I want to make sure that we, we um, take a minute and talk about your latest project, which is um, the video production telling the story of shock incarceration. I know that you're in the middle of working on that right now, yes. um, and you're actually in the middle of a fundraising campaign in Indiegogo. Um, well, we're getting ready to launch the Indiegogo campaign. Oh, sorry. Summer. Okay, right. Got it. Okay, and so um, tell us about this. What, what is the purpose of creating um, a production around this? Well, one of the things that that um, people say, and Jack Canfield talked when I presented this at, at the Transformational Leadership Council, he said, I've always wanted to know what to do about prisons, but I've never known what to do. He says, people need to see what you're doing. They need to understand what you're doing so that we can duplicate it in more places. Now, shock incarceration is a system. The the doing life program is a system. Every single component makes up part of the system. It does not necessarily have to, they don't necessarily have to all use the same tools because one of the things I learned when I was, was, um, training as a therapist in private practice and all the other things is that everything will work for someone. So I might Mm. choose a physical uh, way of getting myself clear or I might choose an emotional way or I might choose an intellectual way of getting myself clear about what I want to do next. And, And people do... You know, you know that we have phenomenal systems out there yeah. that truly work. There are people who use the tapping solution. There are people who use 
every single system, transactional analysis, everything I've ever studied has worked for someone. So if you place those tools within the context of the greater system and then give people choice, people will learn. We're humans. We love to learn. And one of the ways we learn best is when we really blow it and we make a mistake Mm. and we correct it and we learn the mechanism of that correction, we Mm. can move on and get through anything. I mean, obstacles obstacles are are just steps toward the goal. You know, how committed are you? So I'm wondering about, um, you know, you say that this, as Jack Canfield mentioned, people need to know so this can be duplicated. You know, it makes me wonder about the privatization of prisons, right? And that's a whole deep topic in itself. But I'm, but it, I'm wondering about is something like what you're doing, is it possible for that to be a privatized program that moves into prison systems? It, it, it could be. I, I think there are people who... who would be um, perfectly capable of doing that kind of thing. Private prisons are in in business, and so there's not a lot of program money, but we certainly had volunteers who came into the program. We had people mm-hmm. um, who worked outside of the system who, who were linked uh, very closely to the prison system. What I want to make clear is we did not have to bring in outsiders. We trained Mm -hmm. people who worked in the system every day who were doing phenomenal jobs. We gave them more tools for how to be even more effective at their jobs. It was a leadership academy. It was a learning academy. It was an incredible thing. And they took the reins, and they did it. They did it day in and day out. And so people need to be willing they need to be clear about about what works and what doesn't and and be focused on how to get the job done. One of the things I wanted to do was make it easier for people to to work and and be happier on their jobs. And mm. I was I loved working in prison. I met some of the best people I ever met in my life mm. working in that in the prison systems. They they were committed Wonderful people who who really wanted to contribute to society, and and they we owe them a great debt of gratitude because when nobody else would work with with the people who ended up being inmates in our prison system, these guys did, these women did. They were just incredible. Um, and do we have people who don't do their jobs in the system? Certainly, we do. Every system has people who who just don't get the level of commitment that you have to have. But I'll tell you, when they get it and when they have the tools to do it, I've never seen anything be able to stop them. So one one, one last question. One last question, Sherry. Um, What is the the number of people who have been through this program? Do you have a By the time I retired in 2010, it was over 42,000. It's about 45,000 who graduated from the... um, six-month program, that does not count people who started in the program and didn't make it all the way through. Mm. But um, So I would say we've we, um, impacted over 150,000 people in the program. That's not counting their children mm. and 
family members who are also affected by the program. You could see the number of little children who show up at a graduation and are so proud of their mothers and fathers who, who, you know, as far as they're concerned, they look like soldiers to them. They, they're, they're so proud. And these children, because again, I've, you know, I was, doing this for 23 years before I retired at the end of 2010, the the children are now contributing and working and thanking us for shock incarceration because it gave them back their parents. This is such an amazing, amazing gift to society, Sherry. You have done work that most people um, wouldn't have the strength and fortitude to stay in, and you have made it happen over the years. You have made such a difference in thousands of lives and in society in general. I know people are going to want to know more about you and the work. How can they find out? Well, the old website is still a link to the new website, and it's easier to spell. So if they go to doinglife.com, it will take them immediately to Social Synergetics and look, socialsynergetics.com. But if they go to doinglife.com, everything is there, including my dissertation. And then dynamicvideos.com, which is James Redman, who's the filmmaker for the documentary we're producing. James has links on his website to videos that people can see about what we've done. <laughs> so doinglife.com or dynamicvideos.com. And then Fantastic. we're going to be launching Fantastic. the Indiegogo campaign. So, Fantastic. Sherry Clark, thank you. It's been an honor to have you here today. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. And remember, everyone, you think big. The world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week.